Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's, uh, let's consider our text this morning talking about the risen Christ who rules and reigns, who has a kingdom, who is the great king of all the ages. That's a message we need more of in this world, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, I trust that this morning as we look into the Word of God together, that we'll, we'll grow and be encouraged. Before I read from our text, how about I, I open with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll read together. Father God, we thank You because You have given us all things. Every good and perfect gift is from You. There is no one else for us to thank but You. Lord, we are grateful and we are sustained by You. We are saved by You. We are now growing in this life and sanctification by You and Your grace. And God, we are dependent on You for knowledge, for insight, for wisdom. And we ask that as we look into Your Word today that You would impart this to us, that we wouldn't just have lots and lots of information today, but that we would have You, that we would not just want to know about You, but that we would want You, and that we would want to, to just be drawn closer to Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that today You would prepare our minds, prepare our hearts, that we would embrace all that You have for us in Your Word. And that, though I am a sinner by nature and by choice, God, that I wouldn't get in the way of Your Word this morning, but that Your Word would be clear to Your people. And we all ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death... By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, we started this section last week with that amazing verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And that is just an amazing, wonderful, awesome statement, amazing, awesome fact of reality that Christ has been raised from the dead. And what we're seeing in the text is not just that fact. But Paul is talking about this. He's bringing this to the Corinthians' attention as evidence and even proof that we as Christians will also be raised in the future. He says here that Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. This is an indication of our future resurrection as those who are in Christ. And he uses this term firstfruits 
uh, a term that we don't use very often in our vernacular. It's not something that we have in our culture, this idea of first fruits. And it is rooted back in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 23, verse 10, God gave Israel this command. He told Moses, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. There are several places where God commands Israel to give their first fruits as an act of worship. It's the first of a harvest that was set aside for God, and it was God's way of caring for His priests also, this special sacrifice. And it's important for us to recognize that the first fruits really were the first fruits. There were other fruits to follow. These were just the first of the harvest. These are not the first and last fruits. These are just the first fruits. There was more to come. And the New Testament uses this term in a couple of places to speak of that same sense. Something has happened as an indication of the first, and there's more to come. 1 Corinthians 15 isn't the only place where this sort of language is used. In Romans 8, verses 22 and 23, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then he says, Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Here, when Paul is speaking of the first fruits of the Spirit, he's not saying you've received a portion of the Spirit and later you'll receive the rest of the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we are headed toward a full redemption. We are headed toward a full salvation that includes our physical bodies. All creation is groaning together. All the physical world, even your bodies, is just enduring the effects of sin right now. But God has given us the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of what is to come. And, and we've started to taste what this future, total, complete, full restoration is going to be like. And there's a sense in which God's Holy Spirit is the first fruits of what is to come. And that the first fruits are a guarantee, even, of what is to come. In 2 Corinthians 1 and, and perhaps some other places, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as our down payment. You ever come across those verses? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is our down payment. Well, that's something you put down initially, like first fruits. And then what is to come is this full, total restoration. And it's a guarantee. God has given us His Spirit. He will do it. Christ has been raised from the dead. We too will be raised from the dead. It is a guarantee of what is to come. And now Paul, opening up with this thought in verse 20 in this passage, he now transitions into a two-Adam paradigm, you could call. A comparison between Jesus Christ, who could be called the second Adam or the last Adam, and the Adam that we know from Genesis. This is going to shape our thinking in, in the verses to follow, not just our immediate passage, but even farther down later in the chapter, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the big idea here in verses 21 and 22 and the others is that where Adam fails as the representative of humankind, where Adam has failed, Christ will succeed. 
Where Adam fails, Christ succeeds. Adam is an antitype. There's this idea of typology where something is a Something happens, and it can be a type of something that is to come. Well, Adam is an anti-type, and you can see that just in verse 21 here, where it says, by a man, this is, of course, speaking of Adam, by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And this is where we get that anti-type language. Adam is an agent of death in the world. He's the agent or the means through which death came into the world because of his sin. And Christ is the flip side of that. Through Him now, resurrection has come into the world. Through Him, there's resurrection and life. Adam is an agent of death, and Jesus Christ is an agent of life. Again, this isn't the only place in the New Testament where we get this language of Adam and Christ being antitypes, being in opposition with what they bring about. You see it most clearly in Romans 5. And if you haven't read Romans 5 in a while, I suggest you jot that down, and it would go great with this study. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can check out Romans 5, starting in verse 12 and reading through the rest of the chapter. In that chapter, in the letter to the Romans, Paul is speaking to many of the spiritual significances of Christ's coming that reverse what Adam has brought. He's talking about the righteousness that Christ provides in place of Adam's sin. He's talking about the blessing that Christ provides in place of the condemnation we inherited from Adam. Christ has reversed these spiritual aspects of sin that are natural to each one of us because we are, after all, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of the same granddaddy, aren't we? And we've all inherited it, and Christ now gives us the opportunity and the salvation He provides to have that reversed. So in Romans 5, Paul is emphasizing much of the spiritual aspect of Adam and Christ. And now in 1 Corinthians 15, he's emphasizing the physical differences, the physical reversal that Christ brings about in succeeding where Adam failed. The physical resurrection of the Christian is his main topic here in this chapter. Whereas Adam brought spiritual and physical death, Christ brings physical death and spiritual life. Jesus Christ has and will reverse what Adam lost as our representative. What Adam lost being our head, Christ will now provide. Look down with me at verse 45 of this chapter down toward the end. Verses 45 to 49 we'll look at where you see some of this language some more. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, "...so also it is written, the first man, Adam..." became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. Don't you like that adjective? Adam was earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly." Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Again, here Paul is talking about the Christian's future resurrection. So you can see that will be our theme for the next several weeks. He's still talking about it down there in those verses. But I want us to consider this morning, because where Paul goes in his, his argument here to the Corinthians, I want us to consider all the ways that Christ is going to reverse 
what Adam has done. All the ways that Christ is going to succeed where Adam has failed. And there's a lot. There's a lot to consider, and it really fills out this passage when we understand the whole biblical teaching on the matter. We know that Jesus was the perfect Israelite, right? Was there ever a perfect Jew? Well, there was one, Jesus Christ, right? He perfectly upheld the law. He fulfilled the law as our representative. We often think about Jesus being the perfect uh, Israelite, whenever we consider the gospel message itself, that not only did Jesus die in our place for our sins, but He actually lived in our place for our righteousness, didn't He? He died in our place to wash away our sins, but before that, for 33 years, He lived in our place perfectly, that when we believe, we might have transferred to our account His righteousness. And again, Romans 5 talks all about this, the spiritual significance that Adam failed and all subsequent men failed. And as God gave the law, they all failed. But then Jesus Christ came and He never failed. Jesus Christ came and He was absolutely perfect. And so He can reverse our account from an infinite negative debt to now, what? An infinitely positive account. We have an infinitely positive account of righteousness with God because of Jesus Christ's righteousness being transferred to our account. But not only is Jesus the perfect Israelite, because you'll see here that Paul is going to be talking about a kingdom. I'm sure you picked up on it. In verse 24, it talks about Christ handing over the kingdom to the Father, and you see all this language about ruling and reigning abolishing, subjecting, all of these things. Christ is not just establishing spiritual restoration in individual hearts by imputing His righteousness to you and taking away your sin. Now, He is doing that. We confess that. That's our gospel, isn't it? But He's doing more. Not only is He spiritually restoring individual hearts, but Christ is going to physically restore this world. This earth is going to be physically restored through Christ the King. There's more than just the individual spiritual aspect to this. There's a physical aspect in which Christ is going to redeem our bodies and restore the entire world. So Christ is not only the perfect Israelite, but He's also the perfect man. And some of you are ready to make jokes about being the perfect man. (laughs) It's almost Valentine's Day. Don't ruin it, okay? Uh, None of you in here is the perfect man. There is only one perfect man, of course, Jesus Christ. And so in that Christ is the perfect Israelite, perfectly fulfilling the law, never sinning, never failing, always being only righteous always. Only righteous always. So too, Christ, being the perfect man, is going to fulfill what Adam lost in the mandate that God initially gave him, and to put dominion or to exercise dominion over the face of the earth. Now, in case you've forgotten that original mandate, I want to read to you Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Very important verse, Genesis 1, 26. You, you have to know it. If you're a believer, you need Genesis 1, 26 in your heart. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And now here's his mandate. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was Adam's call to be a perfect steward of the earth, to be a perfect steward of his own body and to be a perfect steward of the earth. And you know that Adam failed, right? That Adam totally and utterly failed. Through sin, he failed to uphold the dominion mandate that he was given in the earth. This can sometimes be called the the cultural mandate. Adam, being the son of God, was to go out and to make the, the, the culture bring glory to God, to go out and to work the ground and to bring glory to God through his work, to go out and to perfectly subdue and have dominion over the face of the earth. And this, of course, is still the Christian's call. We refer back to these verses as this is the Christian life. We are to go out and we are to be God's stewards of the earth, aren't we? We are to go out and to care for what God has made. But we're never able to do this perfectly. We will always fail. Name one song that couldn't be better. Name one piece of art that couldn't be improved. Name one thing in your life that's perfect. We fail over and over again as stewards, though this is our call to work the ground for men to provide and protect, to create art, to educate. Anything that we do in the environment as we interact with God's creation, we are to exercise our God-given role to steward the earth well. But by the fall, this pursuit was made impossible for us. We can't do it. We cannot rule and reign on this earth in a perfect sense. We can't subdue the earth anymore, can we? And this is the result of the fall. I want to read to you Genesis 3, the curses that came after. Because Adam sinned, God said this, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you.'" and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see how this curse that's come about through Adam's sin now directly affects Adam's mandate? The mandate to subdue the earth? Well, now because of sin, the earth fights back, doesn't it? It grows thorns and thistles, and it makes you sweat and labor and toil. And you can't exercise that perfect dominion over it anymore. Adam couldn't, and we can't. But there's a last Adam who's coming. And this last Adam is establishing his kingdom, and it's going to be a perfect kingdom in which he's going to exercise perfect dominion and restore this earth. Not only is he restoring your souls now, Not only is He restoring your body in the future through your future resurrection, but you are going to go with Him into His kingdom with your resurrected bodies, and as He's restored your body, He's going to restore the whole earth. This is what Paul's linking together here. This is what Paul's tying together. 
is that Christ is restoring all things, and we've received the first fruits, and there's more to come. He's going to make all things perfect. Christ will one day subdue the earth in perfect dominion, and He's bringing your resurrected bodies into that kingdom. And this is the biblical theology you need to have as a backdrop as we go into these verses, particularly verses 23 to 28. We'll start them today and come back next week. When he talks about this kingdom business, let's look at verse 23 again. When Paul's talking about their future, future resurrection, he says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, who will be resurrected? Well, those who are Christ at His coming. And then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Paul gives us an ordering of events here on God's calendar, doesn't he? He gives us three things that are going to happen, and one has already happened. The first being Christ's resurrection. This is the first fruits. And we know that when Christ <clears throat> was on the cross in the temple, or in, in the temple, the veil tore in two, there were other people who were resurrected at that time too, weren't there? Now, we don't know what happened. Scripture doesn't say what happened to those people, but we know that there was a resurrection event then, and we know, of course, that Christ rose from the dead, never to die again, ascending into heaven. This is the first fruits of what is to come. And the next event, the next thing that is to come, it says, and again in verse 23, that after Christ rising from the dead, those who are Christ's, those who belong to Jesus, those who are in Him, His church, they are the ones to rise from the dead at His coming. When Christ returns, there will be a Christian resurrection. The bodies will come out of the graves and be changed in that moment when Christ returns. You see the word order that's found there in verse 23? This is the only place in the New Testament where this word comes up, but in places outside of the New Testament, we see this Greek word used in antiquity, talking about military rank or priority, each in his own order. Well, it's very fitting that Christ is first in this list, isn't it? Christ is first. But as we learned last week, the destiny of Christ is the destiny of His people. And so we are next. We come next following Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's resurrection. And this is what Revelation 20 talks about when it talks about the first resurrection. And we'll look more at Revelation 20 next week. But there's a first resurrection, and within that, you have the resurrection of the church, believers in Jesus Christ. You have the resurrection of those who die during the tribulation, who believe in Jesus Christ. You have the resurrection of Old Testament saints. They need to come back too, don't they? The saints in the Old Testament, believing Israelites, those who were justified by faith like their father Abraham, they too will be resurrected. And then, of course, there's a later resurrection of unbelievers, those who will be resurrected at the end and meet God before the great white throne judgment, who will be resurrected to meet God before that throne and be cast into the lake of fire. So we'll come back to this thought of what's happening at Christ's coming in just a moment, but those were the first two things. And then third is the end. You have Christ's resurrection in verse 23 as the first fruits. Secondly, the resurrection of Christians at Christ's coming. 
And then thirdly, verse 24, the end. Then comes the end. Now, we don't need to see the end as we would see it in a movie. When you see the end in a movie, you think it's over. And depending on the movie, you think, praise the Lord, it's over. (laughs) Well, it's not that same kind of ending, is it? We will never cease to be. God will never cease to be. This goes on eternally, doesn't it? That's an amazing thought. Well, so Paul defines this end by saying, when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. It's when Jesus delivers the kingdom, the Son of God, to God the Father. And he does so only after abolishing all other rule at the end of his reign. You see this? He's going to abolish all other rule. That's what he has accomplished, which brings him to the point of handing the kingdom over to the Father. Now, Jesus will never cease to reign in a general sense. You read through the book of Revelation, and do you ever see Jesus ceasing to reign? Well, no, you don't. Jesus, of course, is always ruling and reigning. But there is a sense in which something changes at this point, isn't there? It's His kingdom now being handed over to the Father, and now it becomes the Father's kingdom. And we'll talk in detail next week on this. Wayne, it's that old trick you taught me. Next week, right? Next week. You have to come back next week. So Paul, what he does here is begins a digression. As he's talking about Christian resurrection, Paul's known to do this. He digresses a bit, and he's going to talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of the Son, and he's going to do so for several verses before returning to the idea of Christian resurrection. But I don't want you to see this as though they're, they're disconnected. We have to see this all together, because the Messiah's kingdom, this, the kingdom of the Son of God, it's going to be about establishing a physical restoration of all things on the earth. He's already begun with a spiritual restoration, hasn't he? And this kingdom, when it becomes fully manifested, there's going to be physical restoration on the face of the earth. And we, as his people, we're individually, are going, we're going to be physically restored in our bodies, that we may join him in this kingdom and the kingdom work of physically restoring the earth. This is your future, Christian. This is exciting stuff. It should be exciting. As I've gone through this study, there's just so much to see. We're going to go to the Old Testament in a moment, and especially when you go to the Old Testament, there's so much to see. But when you really get into this and think about what's going to happen in the future, it affects the way you look at everything right now. It affects the way that you look at your neighborhood. It affects the way you you look at your raised beds in your backyard for for planting things. One of these days, Christ is going to restore all vegetation. It affects the way that you look at your relationships. It affects the way you look at the news and all the talk of wars and rumors of wars. It affects the way you look at everything in your life. And it's very important for you as a Christian to think this way. See everything, of course, through the gospel and what Jesus has done to take care of your sins and to restore your soul spiritually. Yes, think about that all the time. But join with it what He's going to do in the physical world. Not just what He's doing immaterially, but what He's doing materially. And don't get caught up in this thinking that immaterial is good and material is bad. 
Bodies are bad. Houses are bad. Cars are bad. Plants are bad. Everything's bad if it's physical. God created this place, didn't He? He created the physical place where we're living. Do you think He thinks it's worth just throwing all away? It's much more beautiful to think, as Scripture instructs us, that He's going to redeem it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to take these things that are broken by sin, all the struggle, the thorns, thistles, sweat of the brow. He's not going to just throw it all out. He's going to remove the curse. And then we'll go back to enjoying His world without sin. Now, how about that for a story? That's Christianity, my friends. That's what you believe. He's making all things new. Well, I have so much more to show you this morning, so we better get started. Um, As we think about the kingdom, in this kingdom, Jesus Christ is not only revealing Himself as the ultimate man, the only perfect capital M man there ever has been, perfectly upholding dominion on the earth, which is what He's going to do, as I was just saying. He's fulfilling that cultural mandate of Genesis 1, totally subduing the earth. But He's also revealing Himself as the ultimate King. Jesus Christ will show Himself to be ultimate capital K King on the face of the earth. And I want us to spend some time looking at this from the Old Testament. Three prophets we'll look at today. Let's go to the book of Joel together the book of Joel, you'll notice that what we're looking at here is not in Bible book order, but it is in chronological order from when these were written, book of Joel being the first chronologically of the three prophets we'll look at today. It's a little three-chapter book. You do well to find it and to know where it is. God spoke it and preserved it for you. So find Joel and find chapter two of Joel. As we try to answer the question, How will Christ be revealed as king in the messianic kingdom? We're going to see some amazing promises from the Old Testament. How will Christ reveal himself as the ultimate king in his messianic kingdom? Well, let's start at Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Joel 2, 18, it says, Then the Lord, at this time, time in the future... Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. He's speaking to Israel here, talking about a restoration that's going to happen in Israel's land where they will dwell among other nations, but never be a reproach to those other nations. Seeing that? You catching that with me? Mark it down. Drop down to verse 24, same chapter, Joel 2, 24. He promises Israel that the the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the result of the fall, Right? Were locusts eating away and killing things before the fall? No. But here, God's restoring all things, isn't He? Physical things. He's going to make up for them all the, for all the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. 
You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. That's a promise. A promise to Israel. And a promise that we're going to eat in this kingdom. Amen? Huh? That sounds good. Amen. We're going to eat. So God is going to bring about material restoration in His kingdom. You see that? It's physical, material, restoration. Okay, chapter 3. Or sorry, no, before we get to chapter 3. Verse 28, still in Joel 2, verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now, this is an interesting passage. God promising that He's going to convey to His people through revelatory signs, miraculous signs and wonders, the work that He's doing on the face of the earth. Through the Israelites, He's going to do that. And this is particularly interesting because if this passage sounds familiar to you, at Pentecost, when the apostles started speaking with other tongues, they were speaking in other languages, and the other Jews were saying, whoa, what's going on here? Are they drunk? And Peter says, they are not drunk, as you suppose. But what's going on is, God is pouring out His Spirit on all mankind, and they will prophesy and see visions. And he quotes this passage. Again, there's great evidence for us that there are first fruits of this in the church, aren't there? We get the first fruits of this restoration plan of God, what God is doing in the world to renew and restore all things. The church gets to enjoy the first fruits. And look even more, verse 30, Joel 2, 30. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, be blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So not only will there be material restoration in Israel, there's going to be spiritual restoration in Israel. They will have the Spirit of God. They will dream dreams and see visions, and they will proclaim the good news of the Lord. They will be spiritually restored. And now chapter 3. Just keep reading the very next verse, Joel 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people Israel and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Drop down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Remember this phrasing. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. 
Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So we've seen that this coming kingdom includes a physical restoration of all things. The locust has eaten up certain things, and God's going to restore back, isn't He? And we're still waiting on that, aren't we? We also see a great outpouring in Israel where Israelites are going to dream dreams and see visions and proclaim the name of the Lord. And we're still waiting on that, aren't we? And then we see here too, there's a national restoration that's going to happen for Israel and the other nations are going to gather in a valley and be judged by God. And we're waiting for that to happen too, aren't we? That before we get into all the amazing restoration that we will all enjoy There's going to be a judging that's going to happen in this valley. There's going to be war. There's going to be bloodshed, and people will lose their lives. The presence of the Lord will be physically there dealing with them. And you can see that, again, in this chapter, drop down to verse 16, just verses 16 and 17 here. It says that the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. God is returning to His city and He's going to judge from there, judge the nations and bring about restoration for Israel. So there's a time of war and judgment on nations before a time of peace. In this time of peace, we can read about in Isaiah. Turn with me back to the book of Isaiah and go to chapter 2 with me. We won't be in the other prophets we're looking at for as long as we were in the book of Joel. Just want to show you a couple of things. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 2. Look at what's going to happen now. I hope you remembered the phrasing I asked you to remember earlier what God called the people to do, because something interesting happens here in this passage. Isaiah 2, verse 2, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Isn't that an amazing picture? All the nations streaming to the same mountain, the mountain of the Lord. Verse 3, and many people, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go, go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords back into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is going to be an amazing time. The government is going to be on His shoulders. Isaiah says this in chapter 9, "'For unto us a child is born.'" For unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. We're here discovering, Isaiah is a great book for this, discovering 
this issue of, of mountaintop prophecies. It's like a picture of a mountain range, and there are valleys that exist between those peaks, and you don't fully comprehend those valleys whenever it's first issued to you. But now, don't you know you're living in one? <laughs> you physically live in a valley, <laughs> but you're also living in a spiritual, prophetic valley where God has said, unto us a child is born, and that's happened. Six weeks ago, we were, we were really focused on that, Christmas. The government will be on His shoulders. We're still looking forward to that, aren't we? We're looking forward to this time where nation will no longer go to war against other nations. That's amazing. That's an amazing thought. The nations will be peaceful, and Israel will no longer be considered a reproach. We're looking forward to such an, a wonderful, amazing, peaceful, restored earth. And now the last prophet I want us to look at this morning is Zechariah. Toward the end of your Old Testament, the book of Zechariah chapter 9, we'll look at verses 9 and 10, and see another mountaintop prophecy. We'll discover another gap between the mountain peaks in Zechariah 9, starting at verse 9. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the, the bow of war will be cut off. And He will speak peace to the nations, and His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, He already came humble and mounted on a donkey, didn't He? Remember this, Palm Sunday, every Palm Sunday you can remember this prophecy that Jesus comes in and they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. But verse 10, this idea of His dominion will be from sea to sea, and He'll speak peace to the nations. And when He speaks peace to the nations, there will be peace in the nations. They will no longer go to war. We're still looking forward to that day, aren't we? And what an amazing day that'll be. There will be peace in Israel, peace in all the nations, total dominion on the face of the earth. And this kingdom is going to be explicit. This kingdom is not going to be secret. This kingdom is going to be out front for all of us to know and see. The Lord Himself will be reigning from Jerusalem. He will be the perfect king where every king has failed, and some of them have failed greatly, famously. Where every king has failed, this king will succeed. Just as where Adam has failed, as the one who was to have dominion over the face of the earth, to create a godly culture on the face of the earth. This king is going to succeed in all of that. This ultimate king, the ultimate Israelite, the ultimate man, Christ Jesus. And the New Testament authors convey this same idea. Turn with me as you keep going forward to the book of Acts. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 3. I want you to pick up on something, another detail, as we're looking at all these passages, that this is the Son's kingdom. This is the kingdom of the Messiah. 
Remember what 1 Corinthians 15 told us, the Son is going to hand this kingdom over to the Father. But what we're talking about when we discuss all these details, the Lord Himself ruling from Zion, being on His mountain, being there as His throne, this is the physical manifestation of God who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We're not talking about, quite yet, the eternal state. We're not talking about that time whenever all things are totally made new. 2 Peter 3 talks about, Revelation 21 and 22 talk about, we're not there yet. We're talking about an intermediate kingdom, a time before Satan is totally abolished in the lake of, lake of fire, a time when Satan is bound, a time before the new Jerusalem when Christ is reigning from the current Jerusalem. Nevertheless, His reign extends to the end of the earth, ends of the earth, doesn't it, from sea to sea. This is the Son's kingdom before He hands it over to the Father. And Peter gives us some insight into this, starting at verse 17 of Acts chapter 3. Peter here is preaching to Jews in the early church. Peter's preaching to the Jewish people who know their Old Testament prophets, the ones we just read, and listen to what Peter has to say. He says, and now, brethren, his countrymen, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, I want you to stop right there. Look up. He's saying that first mountaintop is behind. He's saying there has been this suffering of the Messiah fulfilled. But what's next? Here we go. Verse 19, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. This is a second coming. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter has a hope of a future period of restoration on the face of the earth, doesn't he? He's looking forward to a future physical restoration on the face of the earth, a time of refreshing And it's going to come about through the kingship of Jesus Christ, whom heaven has received for a period. Did you catch that? Verses 20 and 21 are are critical. So if you're writing, writing it down or highlighting, verses 20 and 21. At the second coming, there will be a time of restoration. Heaven has received him, but he's coming again. There's a second coming. And this kingdom... This time of restoration is going to be in accordance with those Old Testament prophets. Did you notice again in verse 18, he mentioned the prophets of the Old Testament. And then again in verse 21, he said that this is all going to happen in accordance with what was spoken by the holy prophets. So what we were just reading in Joel, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, that time is coming. And we're living in between the two comings of Christ. But not only in the book of Acts do we see this, we see it in the letter we've been studying. Turn to 1 Corinthians, and before we go back to chapter 15, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you remember Paul talking about the coming kingdom in 1 Corinthians 6? You may not. But let's look at this together, 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll start at verse 1. This was, of course, the section about lawsuits among Christians and how that's not proper for Christians to sue one another. In 1 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now that is an amazing phrase. And it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? There's an answer baked into that. We are going to judge the world. Wow. Okay, continuing on in verse 2. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life. There's coming a time when we will judge angels. When God's people are going to be ruling and reigning as co-heirs with Christ, judging the world and judging angels. This is a future time, isn't it? That period of restoration and refreshing. And then drop down to verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to describe the people that he has in view. But he's talking about a future inheritance of the kingdom of God. There's a future time of inheritance. There's more to come for the Christian. And then when we get to chapter 15, he says this begins with a physical resurrection. Then we enter into that kingdom of the Son of God, where we will judge the world and judge angels. Now, we're going to pick up here next week, but I want to leave you today with a final theological consideration. We look forward to the physical kingdom of Christ, I hope. Let's, let's just do a test. Well, you can say amen. Do you look forward to the Messiah's future kingdom? Amen. Okay, good deal. We do look forward to that time. Yet, do we also recognize and embrace that Christ is already ruling and reigning? He is already ruling and reigning in His church. I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 23. It says, <clears throat> we'll start kind of toward the middle here, when He, God the Father, when the Father raised Him, God the Son, from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We, as the church, possess the one who has put all things in subjection, who's over all rule and authority, the one who is truly king, we, the church, possess Him. We've received Him. He's a gift of God the Father to the church. He's begun His rule and reign as the firstfruits in the church. And this is going to grow. And it's eventually, upon His return, going to overtake the whole world. 
It's an amazing picture. Again, in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, John says that he's writing this letter from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's another name for Jesus you can use with your neighbors this week. When someone says Jesus, oh, you mean the ruler of the kings of the earth? To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is king. He has the glory. He has the dominion forever and ever. And we are already a kingdom, aren't we? But it has not yet been revealed everything that will be. It's one of those just amazing concepts that for me, once I grasp it, it it really helped me understand so much in Scripture. Already, but not yet. Is Christ king? Yes, He is already, but not yet what He totally will be on the face of the earth. Are we a kingdom? Yes, we are already, but not quite yet what we will be according to all that God has promised. He has begun, and it's going to grow, and it's going to be physically manifested on the earth. So think of it this way. Heaven hasn't received Jesus Christ in a way that's ambivalent toward His exaltation. Because you know that when Jesus Christ went to heaven, He sat down somewhere, right? For Hebrews 1.3, after having made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's not like heaven received Him and it's like, okay, that's nice, but later you'll be king. That's not it. Not ambivalent toward the fact that He's ruling and reigning now. In fact, it says in Colossians 1.13 that He has rescued us from the domain of darkness as His people and transferred us to the kingdom. And you might expect it to say the kingdom of light, but it says we've been transferred to the kingdom of His Son. We are already living in the Son's kingdom, aren't we? We've been placed there but it's not yet as it will totally be when He comes and establishes this kingdom on the face of the earth and then physically puts all rule and authority into subjection under His feet, the Father actively involved in this process, and the last enemy to be abolished is death, and then comes the end when He hands the kingdom over to the Father. And we'll talk about that more next week, okay? Thank you for hanging with me. You guys did a great job. And uh, I look forward to picking this up next week and talking more about this future glorious kingdom. Let's pray. God, your word is amazing, so deep and rich. God, we are, we are fat and wealthy because of what you've given to us in your word. We have more than we could ever obtain because of you. You have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You've given us instruction. You've given us faith and strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, heaven. Isn't this so true? God, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, equip us to live and serve in such a way that pleases you in our context this week and all the days that you've allotted to us, that we would keep 
not only the gospel in view, but right with it, this coming kingdom where you are truly going to explicitly display your kingship over the face of the earth when you restore this place you made all for your own glory. What an amazing, beautiful, wonderful story you are writing, God. Thank you for including us in it as kingdom citizens. Help us to bring praise to your name in thought, word, and deed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.